Welcome to the Normal to Nomad podcast, where we share stories, thoughts, ideas, and conversations on our journey to find balance with nature in a technologically advanced world. My name is Baron. And I'm Elsa. We live together in a 13-foot scamp trailer with our dog camp in the American wilderness. Welcome back to the next episode. In this episode, we discuss the evolution of our work lives and how we've learned to utilize the power of the internet to be able to make money from anywhere in the world. So, for funsies, what was your very, very first job? Just real quick. I think my first job was working in a warehouse, and we had to fill orders for different seasonal decorations, driving little forklifts around. Oh, that sounds like it could be kind of fun. It was initially, but... um, I got really burned out on it quick. Yeah, I can imagine. Santas aren't really your thing. No, not so much. My first job was Sears Grand. When I was 16, I was a cashier. I made a lot of money at that time because I had nothing to spend money on at that time. So it was pretty cush. So would you just buy a bunch of airheads? (laughs) Yes, I did. (laughs) I think I bought a self-tanner at one time. Uh, Yeah, Sears was a great place. Still there. So where do you want to begin Well, I think our college age is kind of where the majority of our influential work began, kind of college and maybe before. I met you in my my junior year of college, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the work experience that I know you through. Maybe start like at Backwoods. Okay. Uh, I guess when Elsa and I met, I was working at a sporting goods store called Backwoods. And it was in Kansas City, and we carried all kinds of backpacking gear and climbing gear and camping gear, all that kind of stuff. So that was where I got most of the stuff that we still use today, really. So if you're looking to transition into nomad life, a sporting goods store like that is a good place to start because you get a lot of pro deals and everything, and then you can use that gear going forward. You You got the tent, our clean canteen water bottle. Like, a ton of your clothes. All my merino stuff, for the most part. Some jackets. me some clothes. It was a really awesome way for you to very cheaply get things that we needed. Even at the, at the time, we didn't realize we were going to be doing this type of a lifestyle. But it seems like almost all the small towns we've ever been to have little gear shops that can always use seasonal workers. And a lot of people ask how to make money on the road, and... We kind of feel like that would be one of the better ways. You don't make a ton of money, but you make up the money that you don't make by getting free stuff and cheap stuff. That goes directly toward this lifestyle. Right. And while I was working there, one of my friends came in and he had been working in the uh, automotive industry for a little while. And he came up and said, like, dude, you got to be, you can do more than this. You know, like you could be doing something else. And kind of, I had been studying up on web development at the time. And you went to school for web development, didn't you? Coding and stuff? uh, Yeah, I went to DeVry for a little while. But then I realized that a lot of the things that they were teaching me were outdated. So they were teaching, and they were a lot of like more corporate oriented uh, systems and languages and stuff. And that wasn't what I was interested in. So I started learning how to build websites online through Team Treehouse and stuff. And I had a little mini laptop called a netbook back then. And during lunch hour at Backwoods, I would study up on how to build websites. So then he came in and was like, dude, we should, uh, 
we should build websites together. So I was like, all right. So we brought, bought a WordPress template and uh, the WordPress template was catered toward used car dealerships. So we walked into a used car dealership and showed them what we could build them and showed them like, look, we can put your logo here and you can upload your cars and then they'll upload to auto trader and all these different things. And they agreed to buy a website for $50 and then 50 bucks a month after that, which was uh, pretty revolutionary to me because I had always thought that there was so much complexity to doing business and to being a business owner, if you will. But we just walked into a place cold, um, didn't even tell them we were coming and sold them a website with a retainer on the spot. And that was one of the first websites I really built. So that was a pretty powerful experience for me. And then going forward, did that for a while and built car dealer websites, like used car dealership websites. And we would just go on Google Maps and look around different areas in Kansas City for the different the car dealerships that didn't show up on Google Maps as having a website. And we would just make a list and then we would go into each of those places and sell them a website for anywhere from... 50 to $500 up front and then 50 to a hundred bucks a month after that, just for upkeep and did that for a while. That was, that was hard, but it taught me a lot, like trying to sell car dealers, used car dealers, especially on anything was, um, like not a fun challenge, but it worked. And you had moderately good sales experience from working at Backwoods. I mean, Kinda. Enough to get the job done. Sure. What At what point did you stop working at Backwoods? Um, it was shortly after we made, we made a few sales, and then it was like, okay, I'll just do this. So after we sold a few websites, I started also working for my buddy's dad that had a automotive consultive, or an automotive consulting agency, and I did all their IT work and built all their websites and helped them with marketing and that kind of stuff. And at the same time, we started selling AdWords programs or AdWords packages to all kinds of different lead-oriented businesses, like um, tree-trimming businesses and dentists and different things like that. Anything that would benefit from direct leads is kind of what we were going after, because then we could show our monetization and how much like ROI they were getting on their advertising packages. So those types of businesses really lended themselves to that. And then from there, I guess I was, yeah, just building in most of our clientele, if it wasn't, if we weren't just like walking into places, a lot of it was referrals. So then we just were building all different kinds of websites and it was initially in WordPress and then we migrated over to Squarespace. And then from there, I guess that was when I started working with Salvo Rennick and Enginology. That was a sort of incubator and co-working space within a advertising agency. So I did a lot of their SEO work and adver- or, uh, AdWords work and made them, like, one of the most tedious things I did was make email designs for them, all kinds of things like that. And within that agency, there were several different businesses, one of them being one of my best friends, Alec, who I met during that. He was, he had an Envy controller company there. Didn't he meet the founders of Reddit in, in a competition yeah, or something? Yeah, he, uh, Alexis Ohanian he met um, in his 
entrepreneurship degree somehow. I don't know how that went. But that kind of got me into the startup space in Kansas City, which I thought was a super interesting thing at the time. It's kind of a small city with a lot of things blooming and blossoming. Yeah, and it's like smack dab in the middle of the U.S., so different people trickle in from different places. But there was a pretty strong startup scene, and I kind of got involved in that and was building websites and stuff for several different people within that space, and then also doing contract work through the agency. Um, And then a friend of mine at the agency and I decided that we wanted to start some kind of business of our own, and we sort of stumbled into, or didn't stumble into, but we were looking for something that would leverage uh, brands heavily, so it would rely heavily on the brand that you build, because we were good at building brands by that point, and we had the agency to leverage, and it ha- and something that had a high margin. So the thing that we landed on was luxury watches. So we started a company called Nile Luxury Watches, um, and ran with that for like the next two years. So I remember being in the makerspace in Kansas City and working with 3D printers to print out our cases, and then we worked with Gorilla Glass to make our glass, because we had both glass on the front of the bezel and on the back of it so that you could see the mechanical movement in the back. We got our movements from Switzerland and then put all the hands on them and built the cases out of stainless steel and uh, got those laser cut. And then Alec actually painted a lot of them uh, in the beginning. And then we started, like, I was assembling luxury watches, and we were selling them for upwards of right over four grand, which was ridiculous. that you sold one to? Uh, Mark Andreessen. That was, like, that was the moment where it was like, oh, my God, this is real. We sold a watch to, uh, he was one of the, he made Netscape, the original internet browser. His name's Mark Andreessen. He works in Andreessen Horowitz, which is a VC firm in California. And we had shipped somebody, somebody who worked under him that had gotten funding through him. We shipped him some watches and then Mark, I guess, saw him and bought one. And I remember seeing in my email that we had an order from Mark Andreessen for a watch and it was like, Oh my God, we did it. Um, but yeah, I worked with that for a little while longer and then I kind of got pushed out of it. I didn't, that was my first time really working in or with a startup and like founding a company, I guess. So I didn't leverage things how I should have. And as soon as we started to make money, people got greedy and there's a long story there, but we'll kind of leave it at that. Well, and I mean, you didn't have really any money to contribute to the project and that was a huge thing in their eyes. Right. And what, but we really didn't need all that much. You're selling watches for four grand. Right. So like, what did you need more money for? Well, they wanted to scale a lot quicker. And I think a lot of it was like an equity play. But isn't that, wasn't that kind of their problem was the too quick of scale? Yeah, but that's kind of, that's an issue with a lot of people because culturally growth um, is the how you measure success, like rampant growth, especially in the startup space, because then you can leverage that growth to get investing and um, funding, you know? Yeah. So they were trying to get to that point as quickly as possible. And a lot of it for them was more of like a social play. 
so they could like uh, have luxurious dinners and like be the watch guys. And for me, I just wanted to build a cool thing. And I thought it was pretty funny and fun that I was putting watches together that we were selling for so much money. It was kind of uh, like I had fun just with the idea of it. I wasn't trying to make a ton of money. And I think that was kind of what they leveraged to push me out of it. But it ended up being great. But, you learned so much from that experience and how totally. you would then have a business of your own later on down the road. Right. And I don't like no resentment toward those guys. Like they, I was young and naive and, um, I wasn't as passionate about it as they were. Cause I didn't really care about going to Milan and watching car races. And like, that was <laughs> like what they were shooting for. And I was just trying to make cool stuff and have fun doing it. And the bamboozlement of my young self putting watches together and then us selling them for an extreme amount of money was pretty fun for me. I feel like ethically now you probably wouldn't be able to do that as easily. Eh, I don't know. Cause we were just getting over on the super rich, mm-hmm. you know? So it's not like we're taking money from anybody who doesn't already have too much. So, uh, it was kind of a fun thing and I learned a ton and learned how to use 3d printers and sandblasters and how to powder coat things and put watches together. And I learned a ton. Um, so I think all in all, like, I don't care that I didn't make out with much money. I don't think any of them did eventually, but it's all good. And then from there, I started building websites with Alec and we had a sort of web design firm, web design and development firm. And we built websites primarily for different startups in Kansas city and worked on some different software projects and stuff, and that was super fun. You gained a lot of different clients through that, too. And good relationships with badasses throughout KC. So that was a fun thing. You made a lot of money doing that as well, when we were living in our rented house. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, for the time, I think. So that year, Alec and I together cleared, I think, like before expenses and everything, just over $100,000. So that was like 50 each, but we had a lot of, like we paid several different um, programming firms and stuff. So we didn't actually clear all that, but it was like a achievement unlocked sort of thing for us, you know? Yeah. Because now you know that if ever either of you needed to make a bunch of money, just go do that again. Yeah. Like we can just build websites for people. But the thing was, you really didn't get a ton of satisfaction out of it. You didn't have a ton of passion Not really. And it was building websites for any creative. And I think building websites even is creative work, but doing creative work for other people is uh, difficult. Like it's a challenging thing because it's a moving target and there's no right answer really. So it was a lot of build and design something for someone. And then they would iterate on that and say the things that they don't and do like, and then you'd have to change. And it was just uh, tedious. And oftentimes the people that were the most difficult uh, paid us the least. So I don't know. It was a hard thing, but we learned a lot and I still work with some of those clients even now. So that's kind of my story, I guess. Your story up until the scamp. Yeah. My early stuff can really be said pretty quickly, I guess. I've been in video production since I was a kid. Sixth grade is the first time that I made my first video for an audience. It was my sixth grade history class. I just made a video of our lesson that we were learning at the time. I got a really good grade. But even before that, my sister and I had been using our parents' video camera and just making stupid little videos like kids do. 
in high school, I joined a video program. It was e-communications, and I was in the video entertainment department, so two hours of every single day throughout high school. I was working with cameras, doing video editing, um, making videos. It was a really awesome way to get to learn how to use equipment. Um, and I, I would boldly say that I learned more about equipment and how to use the equipment than I did in college. In high school, right? Then in high school, I learned more than I did in college. Right. That's so cool that you had that program available. It's amazing. The same thing, that program has classes like aerospace and engineering, culinary classes throughout the four. I think there's actually, they added a new high school. um, Throughout the five high schools in the city, you can select your kind of area of expertise and choose the high school that you're going to go to based on that. At the time, it was zoning. You didn't choose your high school. But yeah, it was a really awesome program. I was very lucky to have that. While I was in high school, my mom was listening to NPR and told me about this new website called YouTube. It was, I think, 2008. And I got on and started my first YouTube channel, which is still alive and well on YouTube. You can go and find it yourself. I won't give you the name. (laughs) I've got some pretty embarrassing videos on there. It's pretty funny. Back in the day, I was... One of my videos was top 80 on the whole of YouTube. It was a really, really stupid video. But the, the way that everything was laid out then... Oh, it was such a completely different thing years ago. What, like now over 10 years ago? Um... So yeah, I can brag about that. Uh, Top 80 on all of YouTube at one time. So uh, I went to KU for college. They had a little film program that seemed to be cool, but most of my learning came from my jobs that I had at KU, not so much my classes. Um, I worked for KU Marcom, making marketing videos for new students, for um, promotions of the athletics department, all kinds of things. I worked for the athletics department doing the big screens, filming for the big screens, doing replays, making... Like at the basketball games, you were the one behind the camera, right? Yes. Doing for in-game, not for like on TV, but in-game. If you were looking up at the screen while you were at the game, that would have been like me on camera, along with like eight other people. It would have been your shot. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, not me on camera, but... That's so cool. Yeah, it was. I learned a lot. And that was a completely different realm than all the entertainment stuff I'd been doing. Even the marketing stuff for KU Marcom, that was a different realm than all the entertainment I'd come out of high school with. But the athletics department taught me the world of live video production, and that is intense. And I did not want to, to pursue that afterwards, but I learned so much. And also during college, I had a really awesome internship at a production house in downtown Kansas City. I had to make an entry or an audition video, and my video was this stop-motion video of a golf ball that I shot on blankets in my bedroom on the floor, making this golf ball look as though it was like flying up into the air, into the the ocean, and by a whale, and back out, and happened to be a hole-in-one. It was a really cute video, and I got the internship. And worked there just kind of being a PA, a production assistant for a lot of different commercial shoots that they had around town. And um, 
various different small editing opportunities. It was a really cool place, and I wanted to try to get a job there or at another production house in downtown Kansas City. But as I was pursuing all of this video stuff, I had also needed one last elective to graduate from KU, and because I wasn't in the School of Journalism, I couldn't take a photography class. Uh, I was in the School of Liberal Arts and Sciences, so one of the easiest things seemed to be stage makeup. So I took stage makeup just for fun, and I ended up being really good at it. I really liked it. And I started using my video background and making tutorials of my makeup looks. And after graduation, it was kind of 2013, 2014, with my YouTube tutorials, I got lucky during the initial boom of BuzzFeed and viral videos, and my White Walker face during, it was one of the like first seasons of Game of Thrones, I made a stop-motion White Walker video, and that went viral across the world. On it picked up on Reddit first, and then... The Chive, Gizmodo. Yeah, it was all over the place. Ashton Kutcher's blog, Smosh's <laughs> blog. It was everywhere. I'm actually, right now, it was this time, like, five years ago, I think, that that happened. I'm getting Facebook memories now of people <laughs> sharing, you're famous! It really felt like that. It was so wild. Because that, that that was really when viral was a big thing. And well, now... Especially for us. Yeah. You know, because I guess the internet felt, felt smaller back then, I guess. Definitely. But the, that was our first experience with a viral anything in the context of us. Mm-hmm. You know? The news anchor from... Our local town, or the local news anchor, there's a photo of her that came up like yesterday of her sitting in my bedroom talking to her video camera um, and a news segment that I was on. It was so crazy. Uh, it, it was the wildest thing. Not only being like a, an internet celebrity in our group of friends and in our hometown, but across the world. So that shot up my YouTube channel from, I think I maybe had around 500 subscribers to... 30,000 in a matter of a week. From there, I continued making tutorials, and it just kept on growing. I entered the NYX Face Awards, which was a makeup competition in I think the summer of 2014. It was a really popular thing at the time. Um, Up-and-coming makeup artists would apply. You would get sent from NYX Cosmetics all these different makeups, all these different makeup products of theirs in these huge boxes you went through like three or four rounds and then the top six won ten thousand dollars and were flown to LA to compete for the top prize. I made it to the top six. I won ten thousand dollars. That and, was pretty fun. Yeah and you came to LA with me for the f finale I think. The way that I differentiated myself from the bigger YouTubers, because it was a public vote type of thing. So if you were a bigger YouTuber, you kind of had a leg up because you just told all of, all of your followers to go and vote for you. And I, at the time, did not have a huge following. So I separated myself by doing body paint on myself instead of just face makeup. Because it was a creative, creative makeup thing where you had themes each time. I think one theme was a mermaid, one theme was a time period. I chose the psychedelic 60s and drew these really trippy, like drippy drops all over my face and my body. The spider one was really cool too. Oh yeah, that was, I think, monsters or something. I drew this 3D spider on my chest and drew my mouth from my bottom lip all the way down onto my neck to make it look like my mouth was wide open. 
that was cool. And then I made the top six by doing a, a mermaid body paint all over myself. And you made prosthetics for the ears and everything. Yeah, and one of my boobs had a starfish on it. Oh, it was so cool. That was a really fun time. And you were doing all those videos in our the basement of our house. Right, as you were working with Alec. Mm -hmm. During this time, my audience grew pretty rapidly because of all the different uh, push pushing that um, Nix was doing, the promotions and stuff of putting all the artists out there. So I shot up in like six months to 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. It didn't really mean anything though. Like the 100,000 was sweet, but I, I was still doing the same thing I was doing when I had 400 subscribers. And at that point, the makeup art world was blowing up on YouTube. And you can go and see now the makeup genre on YouTube is wildly huge. When I had started, there really were only a few people doing makeup tutorials like I was. I was inspired by a few other girls who've been total OGs and have been doing it forever. But it, through the Nick Space Awards, kind of blew up. And it started to be too easy to copy other people, too challenging to be unique. So... I continued with the body paint, trying to set myself aside from the other people doing just regular makeup and face art stuff, but even then... Kind of got burnt out. Yeah. I was working as a face painter. It was really great money, really fun, going to events, schools, birthday parties, painting um, at like butterflies and princess faces and stuff, and it was awesome. A and super fun job. working for a makeup company with Kate McNabb. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I was doing, um, it was through one of your buddies, mm -hmm. dad's companies. He had a makeup company where I was doing their video tutorials in Chicago and just kind of making promotional product videos for them. That made me a lot of good money at the time. We were making so much money at that time during when we were living in that house. Yeah, we were just like blowing it. Yeah, that was the most expensive rent we ever had. Mm -hmm. But it didn't feel... Yeah, it didn't feel like we were making a ton of money. And how we or how I was making money especially was bursty. Like I would even go two months without making any, and then I would get a big check for like a few grand, and then go a few months without making any money. Or, but I think that's how, I mean, that's how it was for both of us. But mm -hmm. that's what happens when you get into a really niche area of work is you can't rely on the weekly or bi-weekly paycheck it's like project based so you when you're working for yourself you choose how much money you're going to make because you choose how many projects you have going on wouldn't you agree mm -hmm. that's kind of how i got or we got into a bind is we took on too many projects and didn't like i wish we would have catered more to the people that we started working with initially and just build a like five list of five people that were just great to work with rather than trying to like go pursue new clients all the time because that takes so much energy. And if we would have just allocated that energy to the clients that we'd already established, then I think that would have given us a lot more longevity. But we were just always trying to get the new thing, you know? With the face painting, I was working for a really great company and I was having a lot of fun, but... We had started making moves toward this type of a lifestyle and I could see how I was going to want to put this lifestyle online and I was going to need to transition away from makeup into this lifestyle in some way that was 
cohesive enough or like smooth enough so that I wouldn't lose a million followers or subscribers because I mean that was well you didn't have a million to lose at that point <laughs> yeah that's true <laughs> but you know what I'm saying like I didn't want to lose this audience because you had already established it so we talked about whether we should spin up a whole new channel because that's what a lot of people do and a lot of people still do that even for Instagram and if you start even with if, if it's just your personal thing personal Instagram account, then you decide, oh, I want to be a, an interior designer. So should I go and start a new Instagram account? I don't think so. Like, I think a lot of people do that, but I don't know that it's the best move. Well, and I think that's because you've got your audience there with you that you've built based on this trust that they have because it's you. Then you are going to go start this new venture. It's still you. So why would you start over? I think it works in some contexts, but if it is going to be your business, your brand that is still you, I think it makes most sense to just incorporate it into what you already have. And that's what we thought with my YouTube channel is why start over when I have 100,000 subscribers, an audience of people who like me for me, a lot of them, not just for my art. So I kind of intentionally transitioned away from body paint into more doodle art videos and mural art, kind of um, making myself seem more like a general artist rather than a makeup artist or a body painter. It was pretty strategic because then as I'm making tutorials about how we're living in the scamp, I was incorporating different mural time lapses and different doodle time lapses and things like that so that I could... Like softly roll it over to a <laughs> yeah, lifestyle thing. Right, and now it's almost entirely scamp stuff. But it was smooth and now I have 250,000 on YouTube and people seem to love it. Even the people who came initially for face and body paint and were like makeup enthusiasts, now they're like, "Damn, maybe I should live in a trailer." <laughs> right. You know, it's kind Which of is funny. cool because that world is uh, in a way a bit more superficial. It's makeup, it's an art form, but it's um money focused, it's image focused, and now we're presenting a different type of life, living in the forest with very minimal possessions. And no makeup. And no makeup and a lot of dirt. <laughs> and some stink. Um, so that was about the time that we moved into the scamp, right? Yes, as switching the videos into the scamp life, yes. The money sources that we had going into the scamp was, you you had clients still. Mm -hmm. I had several web development clients that I'd continue to work with, some of which I still work with today. And I was making a little bit of monthly cash on YouTube. You were face painting too, that was the majority of your income, right? Well, when we were still living in Kansas City, but mm -hmm. I'd stopped face painting once we moved out right. to Colorado, which was like two months after we moved into the scamp full time. And it was a little bit worrisome, because everybody says... Well, how do you make money? Like, how do how can I do this? I I can't make money like that, or I have to save up a huge amount in order to live like that. But with our small incomes coming in, with our goals to make YouTube a real viable thing to make money, we quickly learned that we don't need as much money as we thought, or as everybody tells us we do in a lifestyle like this because we were spending so much less money that we didn't require making so much money to be truthful though we were pretty 
we were running pretty lean initially. Like when we first started, we didn't have a lot of extra money and we weren't able to save much because we were just like getting on our feet and figuring everything out. And a lot of the money that we did have went into different gear and components that we needed. So we were pretty lean starting out. It's not like we were like, oh, what do we do with all this cash? Yeah. I mean, when have we ever really been like that? Until maybe now. Yeah. But even now, any extra money goes into savings for other goals that we have long term. But because we were spending less and making less, we still had the same amount in our banks, it felt like. Like, it wasn't like we just were broke jamoke moving into the scamp because we saw how much less we were spending generally across the board on going out, on buying clothes, on even buying food. So that was a huge learning element that not a lot of people really had talked about in any of the things that we'd watched on YouTube was, oh, you'll be spending less, so you don't need to work as much. And part of that is how we live, too. Like, we weren't constantly traveling. Yeah, that's a real thing. Because when we did start really traveling from Kansas City to Arizona, oh, the, expensive <laughs> yeah, the gas receipts added up. But, I mean, we have to stay stationary because we're working online. So we have to kind of sit, have some time to work on our laptops, then we go explore, and then we move and do it over and over every two weeks. So is th- in that time, we were kind of bouncing between Breckenridge and... Denver. And that's when we built our relationship and really became great friends with the people at Dust City. Dust City Designs. They do a lot of wood work. They've made a bunch of taps, like beer taps, a lot of stage design, and their main thing now is wood stickers. And I um, very thankfully got in with them, gave them some of my designs and printed some stickers because it was a good way for me to sell my art and a really small, compact piece of merch that we could, and still do, fit in a Rubbermaid tub. Her whole business (laughs) fits in a Rubbermaid tub, and it's excellent. (laughs) Dust City has a ton of huge clients, like um, REI and Bass Pro, for example, who took a few of my designs and now still sell them in their shops. So I make a little bit of residual income off of that. And even now as they've expanded, they still continue to to, uh, give my design to new clients. Some of them take it. So I have, I think, even one design in Japan being sold. And I make just a, a few cents on each that's sold. But that's a really nice thing, nice way to make money. As, I mean, I don't even have to think about it. It's as passive as it could be. All thanks to Dust City. And then we also found, we were staying in an area for a while and found a local organic farm. And we made a little bit of money there, but the majority of the benefit of working there was free food. Free, delicious, hand-plucked produce. And fresh organic vegetables. That's where we learned how to eat vegetables. And that's in doing that is where I learned to enjoy salads. Yeah, well, because, like, I had never had a real radish. They're always so spicy and flavorless when you get them at the grocery store. But And their carrots were like candy. Right. I'd never had fresh off-the-farm produce. It was so good. So we made a little bit of money there, but like Elsa said, it was primarily, our payment was primarily in fresh produce. So every week we got a box of as much produce as we could eat. So we switched our diet to primarily plant-based. 
And you know what? That's just like working at a gear shop. You can find a lot of these organic farms throughout the these little towns we've been traveling through. So if you really were tied on cash, that's a very humbling, literally down-to-earth experience and way to make money as you're on the road. And everything that we learned we can carry going forward into growing our own food and um, sustaining ourselves. And the people that we met are awesome. And oftentimes those farms will have places that you could even park if you're working full-time on the farms. So it's an ultra-viable option if you're trying to transition into nomad life. All the while, while we were making money outside of social media, social media was still continuing to blossom as I was putting up YouTube videos and stuff of mostly, it was a lot of like still tutorial world, how to do this, how to do that, wouldn't you say? Mm-hmm. Um, within a scamp. But then people started really seeming uh, very interested in just the lifestyle itself and vlogs and how we survive together in a teeny tiny trailer. Baron became a much bigger part of the videos. Um, it's like we're two characters on a real-life reality TV show. And I think that's interesting more now that people know us. But I don't know that starting a like, lifestyle vlog is the best way to build an audience. I think it's better to build around sort of more viral or virility-oriented content or like content like that could reach a lot more people. And then once you have those people that are interested in what you're doing, then the vlogs make sense. That's what they say about the huge photographer, photog- ph- photographer YouTuber, Peter McKinnon, is he started his channel when it was very small doing vlogs. And it really didn't take off until he started doing tutorials and teaching people. Teaching people uh, how to do photography and really gaining their trust. And then once they had his trust, then he could start showing vlogs of his life and people cared more because they had the trust in him. And like a a relationship established. Yeah, that's right. So I guess that's a good segue. We were at this time that we were building relationships with our followers. We were reaching out to brands to try to build relationships with them. BioLite was the first. And how we did that was we bought their cook stove because it was something that we needed so we just paid retail price for it and then we went to the park and made a video a really good video using their cook stove and then showed that to them and they were like wow great that's excellent and then from there they sent us the lights and all the different systems that we still use today and it's a back and forth of hey elsa and baron we need content can you um Make some content over our headlamps. We'll send you these headlamps. Or we have prototypes. Could you test them out? And I think that way, if we had just gone to BioLite and been like, hey, we make videos and we would like to make a video, so send us free stuff. I don't think that that works as well as, hey, look at this video that we made about your product. And do you want to work together? I think that's a far more viable strategy than just cold emailing somebody and giving them the potential of some grandiose thing. But then with that experience, we were able to go to companies like Cubic Mini Wood Stoves and say, hey, look, we've done this type of stuff for these brands. How? Uh, here's what we can do for you. Here's what you can do for us. And Leverage that relationship and our demographic and our audience and the type of content that we produce to get free stuff from them because all this free stuff this is specific stuff that we reach out to these brands specifically for 
the wood stove kept us alive all winter, and the BioLite was our main cook stove for a year and a half. Other companies like Firefly Cacao, Cacao is something that I really strongly resonated with. Matador has a lot of really awesome outdoor products. WeBoost is how we get our internet. Um, Grail probably saved our lives in Puerto Rico. Yeah, filtered water. So I get quite a lot of emails very regularly from companies from China, companies, small companies saying, here, we'd like to send you this. Can you make a video review on it? And there is no space in the scamp, even if we wanted to, to take these these companies up on this. Um, so it's kind of a backwards way. Instead of going and... I don't know, we're not being paid in monetarily for for this content. We're being paid in specific gear that we ask for. It's kind of different, but it really has worked for us. And then sometimes we'll make affiliate dollars after that on things that other people buy from the videos that we make. Mm-hmm. Like our freaking frothers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then from there, something that as we built the audience and started to make content that people really uh, saw value in, people wanted to begin donating, which was and still is a wild thing. Yeah. What? Like what, you? You want to give us your money just yeah. because? But it's because we're making so much useful free content and people recognize that and there is this sharing culture alive and well now wouldn't you say yeah totally and it's so it's reciprocative because then people can use the information that we give them to make more money for themselves or to save more money or to find different things that they wouldn't have otherwise been able to find so then that kind of works into patreon and that's a way that we're making a little bit of money currently, but we're still trying to figure out how to position that because it's hard to make Patreon only content because all of the, we would rather just give all of the content to everyone. Like we have been doing all along. Right. But people trust Patreon. So they know what Patreon is and feel comfortable with putting their money into Patreon. So we have that option available and we will grow with it as it continues to grow. And I think with the podcast and stuff, it'll really help us find our place with that. Right, for sure. But it's super, Patreon is super helpful even over like a big donation because we can rely on the monthly click of revenue, you know? So to have that sort of consistency, because there's very little in our life that is consistent, um, to be able to lean on that is really nice. And the content is always still consistent. So that's kind of a nice fair trade. Right. And it's always going to be free. So to close all this out, some general advice that we've taken from our experience would be to build your audience and start small. Don't start by trying to promote yourself to the entire world because the entire world, I don't want to say they don't care, but they just, it's, you can't, you can't do that. So first, build your audience and start small. And something that I learned from the guy who writes the Wait But Why blog, I can't remember his name, but it's to write or make content like you're making it for a stadium full of yourself. Because chances are, there are people that are very much like you that that content will resonate with. So don't try to make it appeal to the whole world. Just write like or make videos like things that you would like to see yourself. 
and you can start small. And another good essay to look at is um, by Kevin Kelly. It's called 1,000 True Fans. And it's the idea that all you need is 1,000 true fans to make really any amount of money that you can fathom. So if you just start small and like every small achievement matters. So if you have 10 followers and like 10 people that you're interacting with, that's a huge achievement. And truly, that's enough to really start and gain momentum. It's like if you're making something and you want that to be your main, your main hustle, Start by pushing that on Facebook and on Instagram to your friends and your family. And then once that gets recognized and people are interested in it, start an Etsy and have the word of mouth be kind of what pushes you and promotes you. Um, build yourself a website. Yeah, and a personal brand. Even, like, um, I built websites for a long time before I built one for myself. And what really helped me was just making buckets, like a thoughts bucket and um, photos bucket and different things like that for any sort of inspirational things or just to ride my inspiration and be able to write about or share anything that I wanted really helped me to build a thing. And now going forward, I can leverage that and show people like, look, here's what I'm about. Here's what I've been doing. It's like a constantly updated portfolio and of your work. The 80-20 rule is something that my dad talks about all the time. 80% of your time and effort should go into the top 20% of your audience. And 20% of your clients will bring you 80% of your revenue, generally speaking. That takes off so much pressure thinking, phew, okay, I don't have to work to push all of my efforts toward every single person in my audience, but catering toward the top 20% of people who interact with us and who um, show us most support and whatever. That's how we, right? Is that how yeah. you would explain that? And in the context of client work, like working with uh, a bunch of different clients, at one point we had 20 plus clients that we were working with. But if we would have instead just worked with the five best clients and put all the energy into that, then I think that would have Created a better product for those clients who would right. then probably come to you again later on down the road. Exactly. So focus on the people and the clients that you have now and build that relationship if it's if they're good people rather than trying to build the new shiny thing over and over again. And lastly, utilize the internet. The internet is a really powerful tool. It gives you access to the entire world of eyes, unlike anything else. I think building a personal brand is going to be like the most constructive thing that you can do going forward. So to just have a website up that is about you and the things that you do for you to be able to pour any of the inspirational or unique things into is a great place to start. And then for any business that you want to pivot into, you can leverage the audience that you've built there to pivot into that business. And say, here is what I have to offer you. Right. So leverage the internet and position it as a tool. And if you need help with any of these things, or if you're stuck, or if you need inspiration or help figuring out how to build a site, give us a shout and we will help you do that. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Normal to Nomad podcast. If you would like to support the podcast, please go over and check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash normal to nomad. Excellent. Well, we'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.
Thank you for listening to this episode. For more information and links to the things we talked about, check out our show notes at normal2nomad.com slash podcast. If you want to see more of what we're up to, we've documented our travels on YouTube for the past three years and are up to a quarter of a million subscribers. Check it out at youtube.com slash Please give us a five-star review if you like the show so other people can find it. Thank you, and have a wonderful day.